Good morning. Great to see everybody milling about, greeting one another. Good morning. My name is Carrie Weiss, and I serve as one of the pastoral residents here. Uh, interestingly, it is on the pastoral residence team, it is me and three Joshes. Josh Phillips, Josh Resto, and Josh Suh. And it is a joy to serve with these Joshes. I'm excited to open up the word with you this morning. Why don't we pray before we dive in? Let's do it. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you today that we are not studying an outdated book, but that your word is alive and that you speak to each and every one of us through this word. I ask that our hearts would be open this morning. I ask that you would help us to hear from you. I ask that your spirit would move. I ask that you would bring greater transformation and healing into our lives. I ask that you would use me and guide me and Father, I ask that we would meet with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Down, okay. Right here, is this good? Lower, right here, good. Okay, all right, that, if I start singing, then it won't pop too much. <laughs> let me ask, let me start with this, some kids, growing up, have one thing they want to be. Other kids don't, and that's normal. But often, a child will be set on one thing that they definitely want to be when they grow up. And so, I want to ask if you could take a risk this morning. If you were one of those kids who had that one thing you wanted to be when you grew up, I'm going to count to three. And when I say three, I'm going to ask you to say that thing out loud. Actually, shout it out loud so that we can all hear it. So what did you want to be when you grow, grew up at the count of three? And please, don't let the one person who decides to actually do this hang there. Okay, let's try this. Ready? What did you want to be when you grew up? One, two, three. That was great. Um, I have no idea what you said. It sounded like this. I will take a risk. And I will tell you that as a child, the one thing that I wanted to be was a spy. My family would tell you that I would spend days dressed up as a spy and acting like a spy, which is ironic because if you're dressed up like a spy, it's going to give away the fact that you're a spy. Like, hello, I am a spy. Or if you're acting like a spy, people are going to be like, hey, that guy's a spy. When the whole, the whole thing about being a spy is you want to fly under the radar. You want to go undetected. You see, a spy sneaks in undetected and does their work from the inside out. It's a lot like a parasite. A parasite will take up residence in our bodies, and we don't even know that it's there but it starts draining our resources and literally consuming us from the inside out. Today I want to talk about something that is much like a spy. I want to talk about something that is much like a parasite. 
It lives inside of us. It consumes our resources. It drains us. And that something is shame. Like a spy, it often goes undetected. We don't even know that it's there. And in that environment, it flourishes. Even collectively speaking, collectively as a society, there's this lack of grasping that shame is there, or even what it is. So for example, you might hear someone tell a story, and then someone responds, oh, the shame, and they mean, how embarrassing. Or you might hear someone tell a story, and someone responds, what a shame. And they mean, how sad. But shame is something different than embarrassment, and it's different than sadness. In fact, it's much more destructive than embarrassment and sadness. But like a spy, it's doing its work and going undetected. So what is shame? I can describe its impact. Shame confines us. Shame keeps us from taking risks. Shame exhausts us. Shame blocks us from experiencing true community and intimacy. Shame keeps us running on the treadmill of life, constantly trying to chase after things like accomplishments, attractiveness, status, wealth, something that will help us feel a little bit less of that shame, and it keeps us running and running and running. Shame fuels addiction. Shame perpetuates marriage conflict. And I believe that shame is one of the number one things that keeps us from walking in the fullness of what God has for us. The hope and the joy and the peace and the love that is given to us in Jesus. The fullness of what God has for us. I believe that shame is one of the number one hindrances. So what is shame? I can, I can describe its impact. Brene Brown, who is a professional researcher, has essentially dedicated her life to researching this one topic. She's been doing it for about 10 to 15 years. And so she's basically become the leading voice globally on shame. So she writes about it, she speaks about it, and it's not based on little stories or anecdotes. It's really based on over a thousand of pieces of data, all on shame. And she says this about the impact of shame. She says, shame is highly, highly correlated with addiction, depression, violence, aggression, bullying, suicide, and eating disorders. It is literally sucking the life out of us. And we don't know that it's there. For some people, shame is like this annoying, gnawing that is always present in our life. But I will tell you that for most people, shame swells up. And it makes you want to run, curl up in a ball, and disappear. You see, shame is, shame is painful. In fact, there is often a physiological experience of shame. It's not just something in our heads, it's in our bodies. So for some people, shame feels like an, an emptying of your gut, and for other people, it feels like the room is spinning or like tunnel vision is closing in on you. For some people, it feels like your limbs are tingling. For other people, it feels like this flushing, burning sensation that goes through your body or feels like your heart speeding up or sweating. So you see, shame is painful. And here's the thing. It's the very nature of shame that leaves us believing that it's a me problem. And so we believe that we're alone in it. When the fact is that almost every single human being 
experiences shame. So Brene Brown goes on. She says this. The thing I can tell you about shame, it's universal. We all have it. No one wants to talk about it. And the less you talk about it, the more you have it. Shame is an epidemic in our culture. Another article written in Christianity Today just a a few years ago says this. Shame is becoming a dominant force in the developed world. Or another article based on research in the United States says this. Based on the research, for people living in the U.S., shame is, quote, our biggest cultural fear. In other words, as a culture, more than we run from feelings of unhappiness, more than we run from feelings of guilt or loneliness or worry, we spend our lives running from shame. We spend our resources, we spend our time, and we spend our energy trying to get out of shame. So what could be opened up for us if we started looking at our shame? What would life look like if shame started to get undone in our experience? And I wonder if, if, if God has something to say about our shame. I wonder if God can help us in our shame. This morning, I believe that he does speak directly to our shame and that he can help us. So that's where I want to spend the rest of our time, seeing what God has to say and seeing how he can help us with our shame. So in order to do so, we're actually going to look at two different passages. As a preaching team, we, we pretty much, we, we're pretty much dedicated to go through one passage every week. But this week, I want to do just something a little bit different. We're going to spend time in two different passages. We're going to look at, on the one hand, the origin of shame, and on the other hand, the solution to shame. So we're going to look at Genesis, and then we're going to look in Colossians. So I actually want to invite you, if you're able to, to stand. And I'll have you turn first to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 25, and then we're going to read a little bit into chapter 3. And then we're going to bounce over from there to Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. So this is Genesis chapter 2 is where we're starting. The very last verse of the chapter. And then we're going to bounce over to Colossians chapter 3. So 2, Genesis 2, verse 25, it says this. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Then it says in three, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you, shall, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Now let's bounce, bounce over to Colossians chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 11. Colossians 3 starting in verse 11, and we're going to read through 14. It says this. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, 
circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. 3.12 says this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You may be seated. So we're going to look at the, the origin of shame and then the solution to shame. So first, the origin of shame, and that's found like we read at the end of Genesis chapter 2. So what's happened thus far is in Genesis chapter 1, it records the creation account. How God created everything with his word. And then Genesis chapter 2 continues that creation account, but this time it doubles back and it zooms in specifically on his creation of humankind. And it describes to us how humankind was made to be. And notice the very last verse of the chapter, the very last verse of the creation story. I'll read it again. It says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It's a glimpse of how it was made to be. And most English translations put it like this. They were naked and they felt no shame. So what does this mean? I will tell you, it, it means something way more than just something sexual. This is talking about their relationship as a whole, how they related to one another. They felt no shame. They were naked and they felt no shame. In other words, they were fully seen, they were fully known, and they were fully at peace with it. There was no self-doubt, self-criticism, self-consciousness. There was no preoccupation with what the other person was thinking. They were fully known. and fully okay, and that is no shame. And that is the very last note that the creation account ends on. So then look, the very next verse is chapter three, like we read, and this is a famous chapter in scripture because it records the fall of humanity. In other words, this is where sin enters the picture and things begin to go awry. And so, a serpent, the very embodiment of Satan, slithers into the garden, tempts Eve to eat of the fruit, who right along with her husband takes it and eats it and rebels against God together. And then look at the very next thing that happens. Verse 7 says this. This is the first consequence then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Do you see what's happening? That all of a sudden, they don't want to be fully seen. They don't want to be fully known by the other person. All of a sudden, they are not okay with being known. And so what do they do? They hide. And then look what happens next. God steps into the garden. In verse 8, it says, He stepped into the garden in the cool of the day. And it makes it seem like something he did regularly. Like this is something they enjoyed. Only what do they do? They hid themselves. The closest thing I can think to relate this is one of my greatest joys as a father is sometimes coming home and stepping in the door and my kids are like, Daddy! And they wrap their arms around my legs. It's like stepping into the garden. And I can only imagine what it would be like if I stepped in and my kids were hiding. 
Only it wasn't a game. It was, don't see me. Don't see me, Daddy. Don't see me. To feel the desperation and the devastation of this moment in the garden. They were hiding. And no one told them to. You see, it was an impulse. All of a sudden, they did not want to be seen. It's the exact opposite of naked and unashamed. Naked and no shame. The exact opposite is now naked and hiding. And so we can begin now to define what shame is. Shame at its core is the impulse to hide, to not want to be known, but to say, don't see me. Don't see me as I am. And from this point on, the theme of shame continues all throughout Scripture. And what I want to make clear is that shame throughout Scripture is a nuanced topic so that there are some times when shame is seen in a positive light. You will run across verses that talk about shame in a positive way. And that's because I believe that shame is like an alarm system inside of us that goes off and says, something is wrong, something is wrong, something is wrong. And sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes shame can work like conviction. And so as devastating as this scene is in the garden, it is at least partially good because something was wrong. Adam and Eve needed to deal with something. And yet, like everything else in this broken and fallen world, that alarm system inside of us has become broken and fallen. So it's like an alarm system that no longer works properly. It misfires. So that's why sometimes you can deal with sin and still feel shame. That's a broken alarm. I think there's two other main ways that we feel this broken alarm system. We feel it not in the way it was made to be, but we feel it in a broken way. We feel it misfire. Number one is we feel shame now in this broken world for other people's sin. particularly the ways that they have sinned and their sin impacts us. We feel shame as a consequence of someone else's sin against us. So the things that have been said to us, the things, the ways that we have been treated, especially in our younger and formative years, and the wounds that we have because of that. That is someone else's sin. And we feel the shame. So let me say, the shame that you feel surrounding your wounds is not your fault. It's someone else's sin and we feel the shame, and we can, we can begin to be healed from that. That, is a, that alarm system is broken, and it can be fixed. But I will also say that there's another way that this alarm system is broken, and I will say for the vast majority of us, it is simply stuck in the on position It's like an alarm system that's always there going off. We just live with it. And it comes across with this message of if someone actually, this is is what shame says and this is what we live with. If someone actually knew you, they would reject you. 
if someone saw you the way you see yourself, they wouldn't love you. And so we live with this message of being unworthy. And I don't mean unworthy of salvation. None of us are worthy of salvation. I'm not talking in a vertical way, but we believe that we are unworthy of love from other people. And in that way, unlovable. And that is the message of shame. If they knew you, they wouldn't love you. So, don't let them see you. Don't let them actually see you. You know, it's important to distinguish between guilt and shame. Sometimes we get confused with this and they are overlapping at times. Guilt has to do with actions. Shame has to do with identity. So guilt says, I failed. Shame says, I am a failure. Guilt says, I made a mistake. Shame says, I am a mistake. And I don't want people to see that I am a failure or a mistake because then they'll reject me and then they won't love me, so don't see me. Let me hide. The voice of shame says, don't let them see you. Let them see this performance you put on in social situations. Don't let them see you. Let them see your gym bod. Don't let them see you. Let them see the letters after your name. Don't let them see you. Let them see your outfit. Don't let them see you. Let them see your talent and how impressive you are. Let them see that you're perfect and you never make mistakes. Don't let them see you. Let them see your popularity. Don't let them see you. Keep everybody at enough distance that they don't see you up close. Because if they did, shame says they won't like what they see. And so we spend our lives hiding. What we see from the very beginning is that shame is this impulse to hide and it is painful. So we spend our lives running from it, numbing it, and ignoring it. Only these things don't fix it. It just keeps growing. So what can fix it? What can fix the shame that we feel? I believe that God can help us And I believe that God is the ultimate healer of our shame. So this is where I I want to bounce over to Colossians. So if you still have a Bible open, let's look at Colossians. I don't think this passage says everything that God says about shame, but I believe it beautifully summarizes how God can help us combat our shame, and you'll notice it never uses the word shame. And yet the content of it, I believe, empties shame of its power. So let's take a look. Colossians chapter three. Colossians chapter three, verse 11, starts like this. It says, here, And and what that is, is it points us back to verse 10. And verse 10 talks about our new self that we receive when when we turn our lives to Jesus, believe in him and follow him. We receive a new self. In other words, a new identity. So verse 11 is saying, because you have a new identity in Jesus... There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And what that means is all the other ways that we seek to define ourselves are now secondary. And our ultimate way, our ultimate identity is in our relationship with Jesus. That is our new identity. And this is an important word against our shame because 
if I seek to define myself by those secondary things and make them ultimate, it creates an environment for shame to flourish. So for example, if I make my work ultimate, if that's what defines me, if I am ultimately carry the therapist, then what happens if I have a bad session? What happens if a client says to me, I don't think this is a good fit? The shame. If that's who I am, then I've just been rejected for who I am. It, it even applies to good things, good identities, but we, but we make them ultimate. Like, what if I define myself as carry the husband or carry the father? What about, what about the days when I miss the mark? What about when I'm running late and stuck in traffic and the last person to pick up my daughter from soccer practice and she's sitting there with the coach? The shame. If that's how I define myself. A few years back, I remember watching a um, University of Michigan football game. And the University of Michigan was playing Ohio State. And so that's the biggest game of the year. And nothing else matters. Not even the bowl games matter. Everybody watches it. And in the first half, the quarterback for the University of Michigan was lighting it up. And I remember the, the announcer saying, this is a defining moment for this young man. He's literally writing his future right now as he's doing this. And then the second half, he, he threw like a billion interceptions. <laughs> Michigan lost, walked out of the stadium. And I remember coming away from that game, and I prayed for him. I prayed for him because if that young man defines himself as the quarterback for the University of Michigan, if that is the ultimate identity, then oh, the shame. But if who we are, if we're ultimately defined by our identity in Jesus, then on our best days, our identity is in Jesus. On our worst days, our identity is in Jesus. When we kill it at work, our identity is in Jesus. When we fail at work, our identity is in Jesus. When we bring our A game, when we bring our D minus game, our identity is in Jesus. And we begin to open the door to undo shame. But I will tell you that this passage keeps describing our identity in Jesus. It tells us more. It goes on for three key descriptions of our identity in Jesus. And when I read this, I read like a, a, a three combo punch against shame. I mean, this is, this is what we need to hear in our shame. So it goes on <clears throat> in verse 12. And it calls us God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Chosen, holy, and beloved. So let's take it one by one. In our identity, in Jesus, we are chosen. What does chosen mean? It is the exact opposite of rejected. And so if shame says, if they truly see you, they will reject you. Our identity in Jesus says the one who truly sees us has not rejected us, but chosen us. We are chosen. And this is truth that, that I literally need to hang on to. When I'm entering situations that I feel could go either way, like I could be accepted or rejected, and I feel the shame begin to rise up as I'm entering the situation, I need to remember, I am already chosen. This thing could go either way. I am still chosen. Not based on what I said or what I did. It's based on God's grace. 
and, and if I could just say this, that, that scripture says whoever comes to Jesus will not be rejected. It's held out to us to be chosen and not rejected. So in our, our identity in Jesus, we are chosen. Number two, we are holy. Do you ever confess your sins and still feel dirty? One author pointed this out, and I believe it's such a common experience. When people have opened up to me, I can tell you that a theme that I have heard is that deep down inside of us, and we often would not share this with anybody else, but living deep down inside of us, we often believe this message, I am a dirty person. Notice that that is, that is a statement about identity. I am a dirty person. But let me say, in our identity in Jesus, the gospel says that when we turn to him, believe in him, follow him, God has promised to look at Jesus' record and Jesus' record only and to leave our record behind, leave it at the cross and never look at it again so that when God sees us, he only sees Jesus' life. And so let me ask you this. Was Jesus a dirty person? Was he a dirty person? There was not a Back, not a milli ounce of dirt on him. And so, when God sees you, that's what he sees. So that regardless of what you have done or what has been done to you, you are clean and nothing will ever change that. In Christ, we are holy. That's our identity. Number three, we're chosen, we're holy, and we're beloved. And I think this might even be the one that we need to hear the most. If I could if I could leave us with one thing that helps combat against shame, it would be a statement that an author made about God. It says this, the one who knows you best loves you most. See, because shame says if, if you knew me, you wouldn't love me. But the one who knows you best loves you most. He sees you. He sees everything about you. He sees all the things that you feel shame for. He knows you more than you know yourself and he loves you more than you can imagine. What's the proof of it? Am I just like up here dripping with Hallmark sentimentality? What's the proof? He said it in his word and he doesn't lie, but also his word became flesh. Jesus, the son of God, lived a perfect life on this earth and died and rose again that we might be gods forever by faith. Why did he do it? Certainly it was for his glory. Certainly it's because he's the God of grace, but scripture is also clear that he did it out of love. He did it because he loves us. And I think this is important because I think at times we need to remember the proof. Because I can tell you, when I'm in a shame storm, 
it is not as helpful to remember that some author wrote a book 10 years ago in New Jersey and says that I have worth because I have worth. <laughs> Con todo respeto. <laughs> that person doesn't know me. I need something more. In that moment, I need the proof. What is the proof of our worth? Is it worth another way of saying price? What is this worth? What is its price? And so the proof of my worth is the price that was paid for my life. The price that was paid for my life is the very life of God, the Son. And there is nothing in heaven and on earth that is worth more than that. That's the price tag on my life. That's the price tag on your life. And that never changes. That is our worth. And that is the proof. The cross speaks of our intrinsic worth. And the cross speaks of God's love for us. I believe that we are all in process of, of more and more embracing that this is true. I think we are in process of taking this from fact that we know God loves me to, to embrace it as something that I know deep down inside. And I believe that the more we take it in, the more our shame is healed because the more we realize the one who knows me best loves me most. So I would encourage us to echo the prayer, the most famous prayer of Paul, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter three, where he prays that Christians would know more fully how loved we are by God and Christ. Can we pray that into our hearts? So in Christ, we are chosen, we're holy, and we're beloved. And as we take in these truths, I believe this is part of our, the undoing of shame. So the solution to shame is founded on these truths, but I think there's one more step to take. The solution to shame is also fleshed out in community. Because God loves us, and he often loves us through his people. He uses people to show his love. As one author said, shame disappears in community. What does that community look like? Because I don't think shame disappears in every community. So what kind of community, what does it look like? What does a community look like where shame disappears? We keep reading in this passage. It says this, verse 12 of Colossians 3. Put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This kind of community creates an atmosphere where we can take the risk to be known. Because the solution to shame is being known and being loved. So when the atmosphere is this, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, someone bearing with me, someone forgiving me, someone loving me, then I might just take the risk to be real. I might just take the risk to be who I truly am, imperfect and flawed. And instead of experiencing rejection, I experience this. And shame begins to be healed. Can I give you a small example of what this has looked like for me? Let me be real with you. Two weeks ago, I was signed up to serve here at the brook in the nursery. It was my first time serving. I was gonna serve with my wife. Lisa, 
And so we're like, you know, talking about it. We're getting ready for it. And, and a few weeks before, the nursery leader had sent me the link to do my background check. And I was like, okay, I'll be sure to do that before I serve. And I didn't do it. And, and then the week before we were going to serve, the, I get the link again. And, and, you know, it says, you know, be sure to do this before you serve. And I'm like, yes, I will do that. But I was in the middle of something. The day before nursery, the nursery leader texts me, says, hey, just be sure to do this background check. And I, I tell that person, I will definitely do this. Okay, thank you. I envision myself sitting down at night, that night, doing it. And guess what I was not thinking about that night as I sat down? The background check. So in the morning, I wake up with the thought, I gotta do this background check. And it was too late. And so, all of a sudden, I begin to feel the shame rising up inside of me. My wife was depending on me. The nursery workers were depending on me. The babies were depending on me. I was supposed to do announcements that day, but I had canceled that to do nursery. So someone else is doing announcements. So everybody, it feels like everybody is shifting for me. And shame is rising up and saying, I'm, I'm kind of new at this church. And now all of a sudden my flaws are out there. So I tell my wife what happened on the way to on the way to service. She was so kind to me. And the nursery leader was so compassionate. And after I experienced those things, I could feel my shame begin to settle down. And you might think, wait a minute, are we just enabling each other to not grow? Is that what this is about? I can tell you, I had consequences that day. I wasn't able to serve. It wasn't just, oh, no, 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 everything's okay. Just go ahead. There were consequences. And the very next day, I was motivated to do that background check. <laughs> because love is a stronger motivation to grow than shame is a motivation to grow. We will grow when we experience love. That's the best way. Love says, Oh, you're not perfect? I'm not either. Let's link arms and we'll figure this out together. And it's that kind of environment where shame begins to be healed. It's this kind of environment when I know I will be treated that way where I might just risk actually naming my shame. Because as another author said, shame is broken when it is spoken. But shame flourishes in hiding. Notice that it says twice, put on. Put on compassion, put on love. In other words, this doesn't happen naturally. This is a deliberate decision. So family, let's decide to be a place where shame can be brought, shame can be broken, shame can be healed. Let's be the community of Jesus. So I'm gonna call the band up. And as I do, let me conclude with this. How is this possible? How is it possible for us to have an identity in Jesus, for us to have the community of Jesus? The solution to shame is possible because Jesus was shamed. He died a shameful, shameful death on the cross. Think about it. Jesus was the very essence of being chosen, holy, and beloved. And yet at the cross, he experienced the exact opposite. At the cross, instead of being treated as chosen, he was rejected. Instead of being treated as holy, he was treated as unholy. Instead of being treated as beloved, he was condemned. Instead of experiencing community, he was forsaken. He died and rose again and offers us the exchange, the reverse, that because at the cross he experienced those things, we can be called chosen and holy and beloved. We can be born into a community. And it's offered to us as a gift. 
So let me say that if you've never received this gift, God holds it out to us. And we can receive it by turning to him. That's what the Bible calls repentance. Turning our lives to him, turning away from living a life apart from him and turning to him, believing that he did truly do what he did for us and that is die and rise again and living a life following him. We receive this gift, we receive the life that he has for us, which includes the solution to shame. For all of us, the solution to shame is being known and being loved. So can I encourage you to come before God and experience that? Experience being known and being loved. I've got one more quote for you. Reveal your shame and he will reveal his grace. Come to him out of hiding and he will come to you with healing. So come before God and experience being known and being loved and come before one another. Maybe just one person. Maybe you're RC. Shame is broken when it is spoken, but it vanishes in community. So let's be a place where we can be real and shame can be healed. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for what you've provided for us. I pray that shame would begin to be undone in our lives. I pray that our relationship with you would sink deeply into our hearts and that we would be this, we would be this kind of community for one another. Would you empower us in this and move mightily in our lives? In Jesus' name, amen. We leave you with this word, with this prayer from Ephesians chapter three. It says this, may Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You're dismissed, church family. We love you. We can't wait to see you next week. Have a great week.